Welcome to Gov Actually, the podcast about how government works. How it actually works. I'm Dan Tangerlini, president of Seamless Docs Federal, and this is the FedScoop Radio Network. And I'm Danny Werfel from the Boston Consulting Group. We launched this pod to try to get beyond the personalities and the politics. Right. We want to talk about how things actually get done in the government, the people who do it, and the challenges they face. So let's talk. So, Danny, why should anyone even bother listening to what we have to say? I'm not sure they should, but, uh, but let's, let's test it and see. Let's, let's launch a podcast and see if, uh, if we actually do have something uh, interesting to say. So the idea of launching a podcast is one that we mutually arrived at, uh, at through separate directions at roughly the same time. And uh, I think I, I said to you that I was interested in doing it. You passed on to me, uh, to my long list of podcasts I'm already listening to, Keeping It 1600. I did, yes. <laughs> and uh, made me now a Keeping It 1600 addict. Uh, but I think that there's actually something missing from that dialogue that I think that actually needs to be, needs to be out in the ether, at least people reacting to, even if we get it entirely wrong. And that's this issue of not just the politics and the personalities, but actually the operations and the processes and the systems, the really hard stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think every, I think it's a really interesting thing to do to look at every issue that's coming up uh, in the election or in any election and look at it through the lens of, you know, government, the reality of government. Can government actually carry some of this stuff out? So a campaign promise. Um, and the debate will rage. So, for example, immigration, you know, you can have on one side of the equation uh, a candidate pushing to build a wall, and on the other side, the candidate pushing for paths to citizenship. Uh, and in the meantime, there's the entire government sitting behind there that's going to have to implement either one of those. And there's, to me, there's this core question is, can the government actually deliver? And... and um, if we're not investing in the right resources and tools and skills in the government, I mean, all of this back and forth uh, can become somewhat empty if the government's not equipped to be able to deliver on any of it. When I think it's funny. There, there are more than enough people who can fill up hours and hours of Sunday morning talk shows and, and, and various podcasts talking about the idea of building a wall, but the, the actual physical... The, the actual process steps necessary to build a wall. I'm, I'm wondering if, if even in eight years you could get through the procurement process to build a wall. Yeah, I mean, that, that's <laughs> that's a really interesting question. I, I, I think that's sometimes lost from our political discourse. Um, what is, it's some, you know, a lot of the conversation can center on, hey, is this ever going to make it through Congress? Like, where's the money going to come from this? And I think that's fair. Like, how are we going to pay for these, for these proposals? That's certainly a fair line of inquiry, and it gets, it gets attention. What never seems to get any attention is, does the government as, and its workforce and its current tool set actually have the ability to make these campaign promises a reality. And I think if you ask that question uh, more robustly, uh, you might enter into important discussions on what kind of investments we need to make in the government to make it high-performing, instead of what the dominant conversation tends to be around government is just the complaints about the areas where it might not be competent, um, the concerns about the bureaucracy, and, and so on and so forth. So what encourages me is that there's a there's a deep interest I think of people uh, diving deeper into the issues and spending a lot of time doing fact checking, 
what what I'm thinking is that here's an opportunity to fact check at another level, and that is uh, the operational fact check. So you can you can fact check whether someone said something b- before or not, or whether what they're saying is accurate or not. There's a whole other level of fact check, and that is whether it's actually accomplishable or not. Yeah, it's like you know, think about it this way: you know, you, you have someone a candidate release their tax plan. Um, and uh, or, or how they're going to change the Affordable Care Act or whatever it happens to be, and then you get these think, tac- think tanks weighing in on typically around the cost and the public policy impacts of some of these things, which is great. It's absolutely an important part of our, our democracy. But you and I, this podcast can be the, the ones where we talk about, can this actually be done you know, from a practical standpoint by the government that we have today? Uh, and the government employees and the tool sets they have, or do we need to really change some of the underlying realities of government operations, uh, give them new tools, give them new flexibilities, invest in training and doing all these different things that nobody ever really talks about? Um, maybe that's the platform that we can use here. I, I know we've both seen it, this massive disconnect between the policy and politics apparatus and the actual apparatus of operations and implementation. And that disconnect isn't just a um, uh, one of uh, kind of organizational separation. It's one of active separation. There, there is a real kind of disdain and, frankly, a distaste for the actual work of making this stuff happen. It's so true. I, and I'll tell this quick story. I think this was during the Obama transition so, so I've, I was in the Clinton administration. I was a civil servant during the Clinton administration. I was a civil servant for the Bush administration. I actually was a civil servant during the Obama administration because I never changed my status, but I did hold up some political appointments during that frame. But during the Obama transition, I was a civil servant at the time, and there was a discussion around this very question of implementation. It's, I can't remember who was in the room. I think we were in transition headquarters when the point was made. But someone painted an analogy in a picture of like the ribbon-cutting ceremony ceremony of signing a piece of legislation, like the president sitting at the desk signing the legislation, and everybody kind of feel congratulates themselves after that's done and kind of, you know, claps their hand together and saying, oh, that was uh, good work, everyone. And then everyone moves on, and the reality is, is that nothing's been done. Right. All that's been done is the framework has been enacted and signed, but now all the real work starts. And the question is, is that everyone who's in that signing ceremony and, and kind of walking away feeling uh, that there was a big accomplishment, how often are they coming back to really think about, you know, relentlessly pursuing effective implementation? And I think we we lose some of the energy after the signing ceremony in many cases. Well, and I think a lot of it is because the, the upper echelons of administrations are generally filled by people who came off of the campaign. And a campaign is really about making the promises and letting someone else deliver them later on, right? It's really about getting the headline, getting the earned media, getting the bump, you know, winning the media cycle. It's not really about actually getting it done. You yeah. just assume that once, you, once you're there, it somehow magically happens. And then if you think about the types of headaches that you have when you're, when you're an administration and running the government, if you look at what caused President Obama his biggest headaches or President Bush's, biggest headaches, you know, it was really about, you know, the government mis-executing on things, you know, sometimes with with some culpability for the workforce, many times, I would argue, because, um, because of just circumstances, uh, you know, and, you know, com- complexity of the laws and regulations that we're carrying out, 
lack of training, uh, lack of, of tools and flexibilities to do to get things done. And so, you know, one of the messages I, I have for any incoming administration is you have really have to think about this government that you're inheriting. You're going to rely on it to do so much. Uh, in terms of not just keeping the trains running for things that are so important to the American people, but to, as part of your legacy for what you want to accomplish, um, it's really going to be very interdependent on the ability of government workers that you've never met before and probably didn't think about that much during the campaign. It's going to be dependent on them coming through and being able to achieve uh, very ambitious uh, goals or objectives that you might have, like building a wall or like creating new paths to citizenship. So it's interesting. I, I feel that the modern federal executive has become obsessed with four things, Congress, the media, uh, foreign affairs, and to some extent, domestic economic affairs, four things that they don't actually control, right? right? What they control is a $3.7 trillion, $2.8 million person, uh, operation, the biggest single operation in this country, and the amount of attention and energy they put into things like procurement or HR or IT, the, the fundamental building blocks of actually delivering those services is is minuscule compared to the amount of energy they spend trying to win a media cycle. Yeah. So let's talk about, uh, I couldn't, couldn't agree more with that. That's a great point. Let's talk about why you and I are sitting here together. Um, you know, I, I don't know if I ever told you this story, so I'll spring it on you right in the in the middle of of our first podcast together, um, which I think creates this kind of this uh, bond between the two of us, and maybe makes us uniquely positioned to answer these questions. Well, let me hear the story first, and we'll determine okay. if there's a bond. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> fair enough. So I was uh, talking to White House personnel. Um, towards the end of the first term, I was the controller at OMB, um, so I had a political appointment. I was actually acting as the deputy director for management at OMB, and I was having one of these kind of conversations, which is if president were to win a second term, um, what does my trajectory look like in terms of uh, uh, of my role in the administration? Am I staying put at OMB, which is fine, or, or am I, or there is there a better and higher use for me elsewhere? Um, and, and the person at White House personnel looked, looked back across the table and said, you know, we really don't know what to do with you, Danny, because it's, you know, you are, you know, we couldn't, like, if we put you at some agency, you don't have any background in any particular policy, or you're just a management guy. And, and they said, you're kind of like the Dan Tangerlini of, uh, uh of government, um, and you had already left uh, Treasury to go do the GSA crisis management thing. So they basically said to me, and I think she used uh, the person I was talking to, the transportation department, as an example. Like, you're certainly competent enough, Danny, to, to be a very senior leader at an agency like the Department of Transportation. But it's not like you have this long history or pedigree of, in the transportation field. Now, if the transportation department had a crisis, now yeah. we'd be really interested in, in someone like you. Because, again, you're out of the Dan Tangerlini mode. Um, and then as it played out, I ultimately there was a crisis uh, at the IRS, and that's where I ended up. Lucky you. I know. I know. <laughs> with no real huge background in the tax code or anything like that. But, but a fair amount of experience working with the IRS over the course of my career. My point is, is that... What what they were reflecting back to me is that I had this kind of generic understanding of government bureaucracy that could be deployed um, in any scenario.
scenario where there needed to be something fixed in government, which which I took as a very huge compliment, and then and that I was out of the Dan Tangerlini mold. And so, what's really interesting is is that, you know. Almost a year to the day before I got called on by the president and the White House chief of staff to go to the IRS, a year earlier, you got the same phone call uh, to go to GSA uh, and deal with with their crisis. Um, And so there's something about uh, our major in government. You know, what did we major in? And we majored in more of just the generic public administration and how do these government bureaucracies work together and how do you move the needle on things versus me being some eminent expert in tax policy or eminent expert in education policy or anything like that. Um, So there's kind of a good government DNA that we both share and we both share this, uh, this very similar experience uh, of of leaving a post and going to an agency in quote unquote crisis. Well, that's uh, that's uh, humbling to be put in the Danny Werfel School <laughs> of uh, Government Service Delivery. It's very funny. It does remind me of the time when I did get to the Treasury Department. I ran into someone I knew from a a different part of my life, and uh, she said, "So, what are you going to do in the department?" And I said, well, I'm going to be the assistant secretary of management, chief financial officer. And she says, oh, no, that's operations. You don't want to do operations. You want to do policy. And she was distressed about this idea that I would, I would waste my time and talent on operations, which to me is kind of suggestive of what are the, one of the bigger problems in service delivery in the federal government is that there is this notion that there's this big break between policy and an actual implementation between policy and operations that there's one that's you know something you should strive to do and one you should avoid at all costs which is reminiscent of this uh, broader discussion about management and budget at OMB the one we we just participated in a discussion over at the partnership for public service yeah that's a great a great story in terms of the emphasis on policy i, I saw that um, when i was at OMB you know i switched from the budget side to the management side um, and, uh, and, and I got a lot of funny reactions to that. You know, it's like you're, I was in the education branch at the time. Um, so maybe I do going back to my earlier point, maybe I do have some expertise in education policy because I was in the education branch. Um, but I was really drawn. And, and I was in the transportation branch. Well, there you go. Well, yeah, actually, you would have, you will, I, I have my eyes on you for right, a senior right. leadership position at some transportation department at some point. Very in happy the doing what I'm doing, but thank yes, you. Yes, crisis or no crisis, I, I like you at the transportation department. Um, but no, I think there's, uh, I felt that maybe, maybe it was in my own head. Uh, but I'm not sure. But when I switched from the budget side to the management side, I went from the education branch at OMB, which is was really you know doing prominent work in things like the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act and rethinking the entire student loan program and like really heady, important policies. And I left all of that to go to the Office of Federal Financial Management to help think through like how the Defense Department needs to get a clean audit opinion. And people thought, well, this seems like a, a step down in terms of uh, the hierarchy of, of, of what you want to do that's important at OMB. And I felt like not at all. And this is where my passion, I really got excited that as a result of activities that I was doing on the budget side, it would be like maybe not even 50-50, but a really small chance that anything would actually translate. I mean, as you know, the president's budget didn't even get looked at uh, this time around. Um, 
but on the management side, after meeting with agencies and kind of discussing their plans to attack a particular problem from an administrative standpoint, I knew walking away that, that things were changing and activities would result from the discussions that we're having that was intended to make the government work better. And I just, I, I got, I got a, a big rush out of that. I, I thought it was funny that uh, becoming the CFO of the Treasury Department being responsible for a ten trillion dollar balance sheet was somehow considered, you know, some some variation of a of a demotion from you know some of these other roles. I, I just thought that that was interesting that the perspective is so skewed in favor of the idea rather than the outcome. And I think what I would love to do uh, through this kind of discussion is is maybe increase the visibility of the complexity of the operation so people have a better appreciation for those people who show up every day in the operational aspects of the government to deliver those outcomes so that they get a little bit of the star treatment that you get at the um, at the at the politics and personality level of the the Hollywood part of Washington and that people recognize that that the outcomes that they rely on the government uh, to deliver actually happen because a, a lot of really smart talented people are out there every day working in the in the engine room actually keeping the thing going yeah and there's different i think there's sometimes there's different typecasting of people in in these organizations uh so i'm picturing like a uh, a new uh secretary coming into uh, an agency and they've just been the ceo of some company or or some uh president of some university and they come into the agency and you know, obviously they need to know where their smart people are in terms of formulating policy and figuring out resource allocation and doing all the, the stuff that's, I think, considered a little bit more sexier in the government space. But they also need to know, like, how to get stuff done in this organization, right? And there's certain people that are like the, the, uh, the bureaucratic barriers, like you're not getting anything through if you don't get it through that particular lawyer or that particular person. Um, and, you know, I've heard a lot of people talk about that there are like 10 or 11 people throughout the government who can like stop anything just because they're institutions in and of themselves and just know so much, but tend to take a little bit more of a, you got to get past me before you move forward. And so that's one typecast. And I actually, it's a generalization, but I think there are people like that in government. And what I don't think there's enough in government is the person who's like, this is the Yoda or the master of how you actually get from point A to point B, not only in this bureaucracy that you've inherited, but in the broader bureaucracy of the government, of the executive branch. Um, and and that's the role that I would, that's what I would aspire to be. I'd love to be the person that- You want to be Yoda. I want to be Yoda. <laughs> I, I guess uh, I do. Yes. Well, I, I messed that up. I was going to do a Yoda impression uh, where he reverses the sentences, right, but right, I, right. I can't do it. Yeah. I'm not that good work on my on feet. That. I will work, work on, on it for the next podcast. Um, and so I want to be that. That like that's my aspiration. Like you need to go to Danny because Danny knows how to get things done. He knows the critical path. He knows which levers to pull. Um, and uh, that, that's, I think we need more people like that in government. And I don't think we've cultivated, nourished, and rewarded people that have that ability. I think for whatever reason, the culture of our government has tended to develop more people that are the, the tough barrier people that you have to figure out how to navigate through. They're kind of like the anti-Yodas, though, right? They're like, they're like, like the Yoda-like people you... Who, who who process ends with, and they just say, no, uh, we will not do that. Correct, you are. 
Right. See, I did it. I, I practiced it in my head, and there, and there you go. But I wasn't going to throw the Yoda tone. So, and and what I would like is to see more transparency of how things are done and how things interrelate. More um, energy put around cooperation. So, frankly, while we identify and celebrate the Yodas, we frankly need fewer of them to actually get stuff done. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. But I think that's what potentially draws you and I together for this is to think about ourselves through the lens of are we the type of people that we aspire to be that person inside the government that understands the challenge but also is bringing kind of the solution to the table and 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 having conversations and dialogues around how are we going to get this done and how are we going to move forward how are we going to evolve how are we going to modernize because you know we'll be recording a podcast three and a half weeks from now and we will have the president elect everyone will know who that person is we'll know what the campaign platform is and then you and i could spend time thinking through and talking about what are the top priorities that this person uh is bringing to the executive branch and to their aspiration for the next four years and we could actually Get, engage in dialogues about what it's going to take to get it done um, from an implementation standpoint. What are the investments that are needed? What are the skill sets? What is the what, what needs to happen in, in these government organizations to make this a reality? So let's take a quick break. And when we get back, let's talk about what we think some of those uh, priorities are. Sounds good. Gov Actually is brought to you by the good folks at the FedScoop Radio Network. Be sure to check out what is happening on the forefront of government technology innovation at FedScoop as well as the most important issues facing cybersecurity professionals at CyberScoop. GovActually is also supported by the Boston Consulting Group and the Center for Public Impact. And Seamless Docs, the fastest, easiest way to move all your administrative data collection processes to the cloud. Seamless Docs helps make government beautiful. Put aside the politics. There are other podcasts to talk about that. Yep. What are the priorities for that incoming administration? I know what I know what I think they are, but I'd love to you hear You mean the your... management priorities? Well, I, I don't think – see, that's the right there, right? Oh, we've already tripped up. <laughs> I think that there's this, this notion that there are management priorities and other priorities is ignoring the fact that your policy priorities only actually happen if you have management priorities that support them. Yeah, it's like, so just going back to, you mentioned earlier that you and I were at this conversation at the Partnership for Public Service the other day, um, talking about the Office of Management and Budget, and uh, and I raised a question for the, for the panel to consider, you were on the panel with Josh Bolton and Alice Rivlin, and um, I, ra- I raised the point, essentially, that if you're at OMB, uh, or in the executive branch when a new president takes over, what typically happens is there's a ton of pressure to quickly move out and release the budget, the budget blueprint, and, and send it up you know, by, by February, by March. And so there's a ton of energy that goes into converting the top campaign platforms into a workable budget construct that can go to Congress and potentially be enacted. Um, nobody's really thinking about the management agenda at that time. In fact, what typically happens, and this has happened a couple administrations in a row, by the time you get to like April, May, June, July of the first uh, first few months of the administration, uh, to use a football analogy, the budget and the policy process is 30, 40 yards ahead of you. Um, and uh, and we're on the management side just sitting down figuring out what the agenda is going to be. And I don't think you ever recover from that that gap, because ultimately what ha- what can happen is is that your um, your 
you're deciding to do different things, but you're not putting the money behind, again, the what I was pointing out earlier, what are the tools that we need on the implementation side to make this happen? Because you hadn't thought about it when, when, you, when you did the original budget blueprint. Right, and I, I think that we, we talked about this at the, at the meeting. It, there's this disconnect between the money that's being put into the budget and the idea of actually what it's buying and how you measure what it's buying which is really what the management agenda is. And for some reason, the, the management agenda gets kind of creeps off, uh, to your point, 30, you know, it's 30 or 40 yards behind. I'm not sure that's a football analogy. It's more of like a, a road yeah, race analogy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, which is, um, I'm, I'm actually a pretty big sports fan, so that's right. kind of, I'm upset no, that I missed okay. that. No, up. that's all right. I, I just and, trying to follow And a Star along. Wars fan, so the yeah, fact that apparently. I couldn't pull the Yoda impression immediately right, right. is also quite embarrassing. Right, we may need to find some. Well, this is our too. first podcast, yeah, so I may, yeah, I'm, I'm going to get better at okay, this. Right, okay. so we'll, we'll see. That's one strike against you. But um, this idea that there's this separation between the resources that's buying something and the way you measure that buying that I think to some extent this notion that there's a separation between management and budget reinforces that idea. And really there needs to be a, a stronger integration um, between the resourcing and the results and the outcomes. And yeah, so I think the answer is, is that is there a way to kind of push up on the agenda for the transition team and the incoming president these core questions that we're raising about the capacity of the government they're inheriting right. to carry out these various priorities that they have and to ask and answer, if they can, questions around things like the workforce. So, for example, uh, are there hiring flexibilities that they need to put in place or um, salary flexibilities to reward high performance in a way that gets uh, that gets people motivated in a different way to perform? Um are there new technologies that need to be deployed and therefore we need you know, to think about things like 18F and the U.S. Digital Service and, and, and how to expand that and make that more uh, or perfect it and make that more of a top priority early on than an than a afterthought as we enter into the summer uh, and, we've, and we've got a lot of steamrolling going on other policy initiatives. I guess my question would be, is there any way to accelerate and emphasize core questions of government capacity and capability early on and get that baked in uh, from day one. Yeah, and I, I think a, a new administration would be loath to start in their 100 days with a, with a request to Congress to give the president more authority to realign government, for instance. Right. But if that doesn't happen in the first 100 days, it's probably not going to happen as we experienced with the efforts around Business USA. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. I mean, that is one of the toughest uh, things to ask for is authority to realign government agencies uh, because the stakeholder map there is really, really complex. Going from the the authorizers and the appropriators that could lose, uh, there's some gerrymandering but, but going on there. Isn't that the of, case with every big policy every administration brings in. There, there's something that's going to challenge a stakeholder base. Right. I'm just saying that government reorg is, you know, on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being the most challenging is is up there. There, There's, you're right. Every time you try to move anything within government, I think, and I think that's really something that, that a lot of people in the public don't always realize because they don't have as much transparency and isn't covered as well in the in the media as it could be, is that one of the things that prevents 
government from evolving in a positive direction is the fact that you have entrenched stakeholder positions that uh, there's always there's always a loser out there in 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 this in terms of it's not everything is not win-win there's always a stakeholder who stands to lose lose bottom line lose positioning lose something and the process creates as as a good democracy does uh, an avenue and a seat at that table for that stakeholder to say, hey, I don't want it to go this way. But that can also, if we don't have a healthy approach to it, lead to a lot of inertia. And so as we experienced when when the president announced uh, his intention to try to realign government, starting with the Commerce Department, he made that great joke about the salmon. Uh, right, right. <laughs> that there's a different agency for dealing with salmon that swim upstream versus downstream or something like that. Um, as, as a basis by which to reorgan, we didn't really make progress as an administration there. We just ran into entrenched stakeholder networks that, uh, that made it impossible. And so that's part, I think, of, of your point. It's like first hundred days. Typically, there's a bigger appetite to ruffle feathers and push on things um, early in administration in, in that window. And if you wait too long, um, you can start to feel the crush of those stakeholders, and it tends to slow progress. And maybe this could be the conversation of our next conversation. This could be the topic of our next conversation. But I actually think appointing someone like the vice president, giving them some kind of authority, charge, and mission to go and reform the way services are delivered could be a means of creating energy right at the beginning, authority, focus, and attention on actually delivering uh, yeah. much improved outcomes in terms of uh, implementation. And I'll, I'll like this, my last point, which is I think there's a real opportunity for either candidate to make this a bipartisan issue because the notion of smarter, leaner, more efficient government, in many ways kind of smaller government because if we can reshape uh, ourselves to be much more kind of uh, on the, you know, get, get stuff out of the tail and into the tooth, as, as some people like to say, uh, it's a bipartisan issue, you know, and, and I could imagine a, either a Democrat or a Republican president coming in and, and, and making the case that we need to reshape our government to be more effective and efficient as a top priority. I mean, who's going to argue with that? Uh, but it also has to be promoted publicly. I mean, it has to be something that uh, that everyone feels accountable for, that we really are going to agree to, uh, to to reshape our government bureaucracy to be better. And I just don't think that becomes a prominent enough issue. Which is which is why I think it has to be someone at the senior level of the politics of the, the administration operation who says, I'm going to own that change. I'm going to own that evolution. Because I, I do actually think if... If the politics, the, the successful politics of the future is really about the middle, the, the vast majority of people who sit in the middle, sawing off the extremes, the one extreme who really doesn't want effective government because they don't want people to think that government is useful, the other side who just wants more regardless of its relative effectiveness, if you can get, if you can get some real attention on the part of the administration, say, look, we're going we're gonna to dive in, we're going to you know, take the red pill on on procurement and HR and IT and service delivery and performance management and outcomes, I, I think you can actually move the needle in, in delivering better government. It. Is the red pill, is that a, an analogy to, or a reference to the movie The Matrix? Yes, that's that. Versus that's the blue the, pill? Yeah, yeah, I like exactly, that. Right. 
we need to work more movie analogies right. into right. our discussion. But they should of be primarily sci-fi because what we're trying to do is I get speak that. to the geek class who exactly. really cares about Nerd other prom, stuff. The right. whole thing. Exactly. All right. I look forward to continuing this conversation. I'll work on my Yoda. I'll bring in some more movie analogies, and we'll try to uh, figure out how to make government better. Thanks, Danny. Thank you. <laughs>